Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. October 1st, 2012, Jonathan Goldsby tweets about me. Jesse Brown giving examples of blandly factual statements. You're wearing a tie, my name is Jesse, and Margaret Wente is a plagiarist. I was curious what uh, the first thing that Goldsby ever tweeted about me was. It wasn't that. He actually was tweeting about stuff I wrote in 2009. It's incredible that there's this perfect record, a perfect record of words. You know, words just fly by every day, but this machine that can tell you the first time I ever mentioned you, the first time you ever mentioned me, what was said. And that one popped out because that appearance of mine on the television show, The Agenda, where I told host Steve Pakin that as sure as he's wearing a tie and my name is Jesse, Margaret Wente is a plagiarist. That was sort of the moment where I found my conviction to start a media criticism project called Canada Land. I had no idea at the time that Goldsby would become a part of it, but I don't think I had met him. It was a relationship based on words. He had heard my words. He tweeted my words. I read his words. He was a master of the form at an early stage, 
tweeting from Toronto City Hall. I think he didn't even have a smartphone, which was part of the lore of Jonathan Goldsby. Back when tweets were essentially text messages typed out on your numerical keypad, he was documenting the Rob Ford era. And all the other reporters at Toronto City Hall, I think, pitched in to buy him his first BlackBerry. Goldsby's mastery of Twitter has been an asset here. Nobody keeps better files. Every dumb thing that every politician ever said lives on his hard drive on a discrete file folder that he can draw up whenever they contradict themselves or make an ass of themselves or turn out a hypocrite. It's not about Twitter. You know, Twitter people like to shit on. He tweeted. He didn't tweet. He said, this is just where people say things. Twitter is about words. It was a word distribution machine. And it's done. And it's taken me a long time to accept that. I was accused of defending Twitter for various reasons. Maybe I like guys like Elon Musk. Maybe it's just because I got a lot of followers. Maybe it's because that's where I'm powerful. I got to tell you, I've had trouble letting go of Twitter because I love words and I love the power that it gives to words and the power that it gives to people to have their words read and distributed instantly around the world, often in relation to how good they are, how funny the words are, or how true they are. Anybody could have a news scoop on Twitter and it would become national, international news in a matter of hours. I could go on and on. I, I have gone on and on, but it's all for nothing because it's done. And here I'm not talking about moderation or algorithms. I'm not talking about Twitter because I'm not talking about Mastodon or Threads or Blue Sky or Truth Social. Words. Words meaning anything. The written word as kind of the most important thing that we did on the internet. I think that's over. I don't know what's next or where we go from here. Anyone who pretends to know that is deluded or lying to you, but the early indications are that it, it's not going to be about words. It, it's about memes or songs or deep fakes. It's about vibes. But whatever it's going to be, it seems pretty conclusive that social media is entering a post-word phase. And I worry about that in broad terms because I think that we need words in order to think. And then I worry about what that means for a guy like Jonathan Goldsby. Wait for it. A quick note before we begin. Last week, we brought you an interview between me and Max Krangel, who is a former lawyer for Big Tobacco. And at the end of that interview, we promised you a follow-up, an episode where Max Krangel and I talk about guns, porn, journalism, and other sinful and controversial industries. It's a fascinating conversation, and we will be bringing it to you in the weeks ahead. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Roberta Harrison, Ness Fraser, Caroline Spicer, Vikas Tiwari, Eric Peterson, Julie Leduc, and Brian. Hi, I'm Brian, an archivist from the Greater Vancouver area. I support Canada Land for its insightful commentary, their reporting, and the dedication of its staff to expert journalism. I just wish I could subscribe a second time.
1997 Austrian film Funny Games takes the form of a social experiment. A pair of young men armed with golf clubs subdue a family of three and hold them captive in their own lakeside vacation home. The invaders malevolently toy with the family, betting them that they'll be dead by dawn. Excruciating by design, Funny Games quite literally dares the audience to stick it out to the end and watch. Here is Michael Pitt as one of the unnamed invaders, speaking directly to the camera in the shot-for-shot English-language remake. I mean, what do you think? You think they stand a chance? You're on their side, aren't you? Who are you betting on, hmm? In some ways, it's less a movie than a test, a trick played on the audience to gauge its willingness to be complicit. The director, Michael Haneke, once famously agreed that the most appropriate response to Funny Games, perhaps the only moral response to it, was to walk out. Anybody who leaves the cinema doesn't need the film, he said, and anybody who stays does. Fifteen years later, Haneke made Amour about an elderly man providing care to his wife as her mind and body progressively deteriorate amidst a series of strokes. Far more tender and widely embraced than Funny Games, Amour earned Haneke an Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, as well as a nomination for Best Director. Both movies, in very, very different ways, tackle versions of the same question. When it becomes clear that a trajectory is locked in, that a situation will only ever get worse and never better, destined for an end that is not just foreseen, but a virtual certainty, how do we respond to that? How do we deal? In some ways, it's one of the questions of our time, due to, you know, looming environmental catastrophe. But, 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 I also find it useful for navigating much more mundane life decisions, ones in which the stakes are by no means existential. In 2017, for example, I left the job at Now magazine for a job at Canada Land, in large part because I thought it might represent a psychological improvement to work for a startup that offered at least the hope of growth over a print-based alt-weekly that was only ever going to continue to contract. I used the metaphor of the printer. Now used to have a giant, full-color laser thing that could spit out beautiful pages and scan hefty court documents with ease. But when now moved offices after selling its building, it traded in that printer for something smaller, bonier. When I joined Canadaland, it also had a crummy printer, a much crummier printer, in fact. But there was always the hope that maybe someday it might get a better printer. And it did, though not like that much better. These days, this question of how we respond to terminal decline is also something I think about every time that I open the platform formerly known as Twitter. A social network is always a social experiment, but like the funny games of Michael Haneke's film, this one now seems malevolently rigged. Like it almost feels as though to keep playing and to keep playing along is necessarily to lose. Do you think it's enough? I mean, you want a real ending, right, with... Plausible plot development, don't you? Twitter changed information, how it's distributed and how it's consumed. 
being there was like dipping your toe into the collective consciousness, maybe splashing around in that a bit. Or like those glass viewing portals you sometimes see at Aquaria that you can poke your head into and look around 360 degrees. Clusters of clownfish sipping about. Sea turtles briskly gliding through their element. A shark here and there. Dozens of other fish you couldn't begin to identify moving in masses with unexpected purpose. Twitter was the sound of thoughts. Everyone's thoughts. Everywhere, all of the time. And every bit as magical and unnatural as that sounds. At its best, it tapped into creativity and wit that had lain dormant in the population, showcasing talents that didn't previously exist because there had been no form or shape for them to take. Live snark became an art. You could contribute new terms to the language. Like we have Toronto writer Kyrell Grant to thank for the term big dick energy, which she coined in tribute to Anthony Bourdain on the June 2018 day that he died. On Twitter, you could trace the evolution of an idea, forwards and backwards, through its constituent particles. There was no one right way to use Twitter, but for me anyway, it was a game. What was the most meaning you could pack into a dispatch of up to 140 or later 280 characters? Often that meant taking advantage of many fewer. In that sense, Twitter was like poetry? The constraints of the character limit enforcing haiku-like efficiency. I first clocked that via a 2009 tweet from Margaret Atwood that took to task a new follower of hers who described her feed as mundane. Quote, Moi? Mundane? You mean practical? Penis tissue and rabbits not mundane, though could be practical, in a pinch, as it were. Unquote. What form other than Twitter might there have been for even an established literary figure like Atwood to write that, deceptively ephemeral, semantically economical, ostentatiously public. Twitter, more than any written medium before it, collapsed the space between having a thought and publishing it to the world. Or learning something, hopefully something factual, and then telling it to everyone. Not just breaking events, but all news became a round-the-clock lapping of waves rather than something carried in on the tide. At least as recently as 14 years ago, the Toronto Star, for example, would typically refresh the bulk of the stories on its site just once a day at 4.30 a.m. precisely. You'd awake to new online content as you would a newspaper rolling into your front door. Having trouble sleeping one night in February 2010, I wandered over to my computer to check out the Star's 4.30 a.m. dump. One story, kind of off to the side, headed, Adam Giambroni apologizes for inappropriate contact with woman. From the headline, I thought that maybe the lefty Toronto City Councillor and newly registered mayoral candidate had bumped into someone and knocked her over. It was actually an exclusive story about a sex scandal, and it led to the 32-year-old Giambroni dropping out of the mayor's race the next day, which I assure you was mind-bendingly weird for Toronto politics at the time, and arguably set the tone for its next decade. I guess I got up around 5.40 a.m., because at 5.46 I tweeted the link, adding, Every single sentence makes me slap my forehead progressively harder. And then enjoyed watching on Twitter as one person after another woke up to the news. And that's still more or less what happens online when things break overnight. 
But the point is that a story like that probably wouldn't be quietly tucked on a website at 4.30 in the morning, waiting for passersby to perhaps catch it from the corner of their eye. By the end of that year-long mayoral election that Rob Ford ultimately won, news in this city and elsewhere ceased to be something delivered as a package at an appointed time. Rather, it became an endless unfolding with each item crafted for maximum instant impact as gauged by its real-time absorption into this feverish mother brain. Very often, this could be exhilarating. For those of us immersed in it, with a professional responsibility to and or personal interest in keeping up with current events, it transformed the way we think, the way we lived in the world. In retrospect, that was probably never going to be sustainable. I mean, who would have guessed that being attuned to all of the world's injustices at once might have some less than great psychological effects. Think of like Newman on Seinfeld explaining why postal workers sometimes snap. Because the mail never stops. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. There's never a let up. It's relentless. Every day it piles up more and more and more. And you've got to get it out. But the more you get out, the more it keeps coming in. And then the barcode reader breaks. And it's publishes clearinghouse. All right, all right, all right. And then imagine that every little bit of anxiety was itself turned into a new piece of mail. And yet, if we can agree that Twitter, as a thing called Twitter, ended last summer, when Elon Musk changed his name to X, then I'd still argue that it was the only major social media platform that, over the course of its life, was actually a net positive for the world, and even served as proof that the world was something that could be changed through words. My first tweet was on Thursday, March 12th, 2009. I pointedly wrote it in the form of a Facebook status, two words, is trepidatious, as in Jonathan Goldsby is trepidatious. Within three months, I tweeted something that cost me a job, well, really a poorly paid online writing gig, when I highlighted some Globe and Mail reporting that revealed that one of the new owners of the city blog I wrote for had been quietly guiding the potential mayoral bid of a right-wing city councillor. Huh. Twitter had some stakes. But it was about a year after that that I first encountered its ability to create cleavages in reality. It's being called Fortress Toronto. Several downtown blocks have been wrapped in more than six kilometers of zinc-coated fencing. The integrated security unit is working to provide a safe and secure environment for the G20 summit. CP24's G20 special correspondent Craig Kielberger joins us now. Wendy Drummond, who's speaking to us on behalf of the Toronto police, when these summits take place, stereotypes always abound. You have the stereotype of the violent protester uh, and also sometimes the stereotype of the, the cold or unfeeling police officer. Are you concerned that this will create that type of stereotype with so many police on the streets of Toronto and, and as we see the days unfold? Our bottom line is we want to have a safe event for everyone. The police presence was massive. An estimated 20,000 officers. There were mass arrests of over 1,000 people and accusations of excessive use of force. Riot officers surrounded and closed in on a group of protesters, holding them in place for hours in a technique called kettling. Tell me what a police state looks like! This is what a police state looks like! Tell me! This is Jackson Prosco near King and Bay. There is a police car on fire, what appears to be in the middle of the intersection right now, casting a pall of thick black smoke. 
This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. The G20 weekend in Toronto is today in large part remembered as a police riot that time when cops lost their shit en masse, attacking peaceful protesters or really anyone who just happened to be around, scooping up over a thousand people and tossing them into tightly packed cages in a makeshift warehouse jail. But for most people, that wasn't how it was seen at the time. For those following the events of that weekend on CP24, Toronto's 24-hour-ish news channel, or via most other mainstream media, the chaos was characterized not by police brutality and mass detention, but by smashed storefronts and a handful of burning police cars, in the face of which some arrests and perhaps even some use of force would naturally be appropriate. People should stop whining and be grateful to police for restoring order. But if you followed the events on Twitter, your perspective was different, radically different even, informed by thousands of real-time dispatches from friends, journalists, randoms, documenting moment by moment as police just arbitrarily swarmed or trapped them. I mean, police could claim that the people they were kettling for hours in the rain at Queen and Spadina were potentially dangerous or whatever, but when you could attach names to many of those people and read their real-time accounts relayed via their dying phones, that's not something that police were accustomed to having to compete with in the moment. Roger Ebert tweeted that night, Toronto cops think they're in Chicago in 1968. In the last years of his life, the legendary Chicago-based film critic had lost the use of his voice, but become deeply immersed in Twitter. 
Eerie, he remarked the next day when passing along a video of police charging at protesters on Queen Street, continuing, quote, The words, O Canada, we stand on guard for thee, are the signal to advance. recognize what had just happened in Toronto was validating. Even Toronto's nominally progressive mayor at the time, David Miller, insisted that we had not seen and experienced the things that we had, in fact, seen and experienced. And I think if we step back a moment and look at similar events around the world and go look at the coverage of events around the world when events like this are held and see what the police in other jurisdictions have done, and the only conclusion you can come to is that we have a police service that respects people's rights, that acts with incredible professionalism. You know, on a hot, sunny afternoon, to be in riot gear uh, with criminals uh, throwing rocks at you, and not a single police officer I'm aware of ever lost his professional demeanor. I was at the press conference where he said that, and the rift was alarming and disorienting, especially as increasingly flummoxed journalists asked him questions. Now, there was nothing new or special about different people having different opinions or even different or divergent understandings of events. But this felt more like, I don't know, an existential fracturing. And which universe you occupied depended on the medium through which you would consume the news. There was a massive march up University Avenue on the Monday afternoon, and extraordinary cross-section of the city's artists, musicians, academics, activists, and journalists what felt like the 2010-era Twitter sphere made flesh. Twitter, a medium chiefly premised on words, which didn't even yet have native photo or video functionality, had managed to radicalize us by offering a competing, and crucially in this case, a fuller and more accurate version of the world. Rob Ford wasn't a writer. Not just that he wasn't an author, of course, but in the sense that, as far as I've ever been able to tell, he didn't communicate in writing. In all of the documents and records ever released in connection to Ford, I, I can't recall a single example of an email or other message that he appeared to have written. And Rob Ford's supporters were not big into smartphones. Not at first, not in 2010 when he was elected mayor. While other candidates released their own apps, his campaign pointedly kept things low-tech, correctly observing that his supporters weren't really the kinds of people who had iPhones. Rather, they were webbed together by talk radio, maybe TV, a little Facebook, the Toronto Sun. The Rob Ford campaign, I tweeted at the time, is the inevitable result of every comment troll on every newspaper website banding together to form a political party. And that tweet was probably condescending and perhaps naive. But I mention it now because I'm struck by how my reference point for online expressions of ambiguous right-wing rage was the comments under articles on newspaper websites. They were probably the only places I regularly came across people who were angry about everything from potholes to what they perceived as the dominant liberal order. I suppose there weren't too many central online spaces where they could be both angry together and angry in the faces of everyone else. They were, in large part, scattered. 
Though I mean, you know, in different ways, we all kind of were. In the following years, social media in general, and Twitter in particular, famously gave rise to mass movements like I Don't Know More, Black Lives Matter, and Me Too. Movements that emerged from the coalescence of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of voices that individually had for too long been marginalized or dismissed. On the first episode of Canada Land Shortcuts podcast that I hosted back in the spring of 2022, the writer Sarah Hagee joined me to talk about what it would mean for Elon Musk to buy Twitter, why the platform had been important, and the kinds of things that might or might not be lost. For example, like a huge thing for people who support Palestinian causes is finding each other on Twitter, people tweeting, you know, like having those voices heard because Palestinians and those who support Palestinians know that you won't see these voices in the news. You won't get to see Palestinians write about what's happening to their people. And I think in that sense, there's power in people being like, well, you can't take my voice away from me if I'm tweeting about these things. Sometimes when Twitter would splinter off from the mainstream, it meant that people within a shared headspace would get a better understanding of the structures of power, say, or of how colonialism or racism or misogyny work in practice. It could create new empathy, offering a fuller and more accurate picture of the world. Other times, well, X is telling me that the number one trend in Canada right now is Tucker Carlson, and that the top trending topic in the States is civil war. And I click through and know that it's not in reference to the historical event or to the upcoming A24 film of that title. The kinds of people I dismissed as Ford's comment trolls also found each other. Those disparate voices, not necessarily marginalized, but certainly of the belief they were, coalesced in the same online spaces and on the same online platforms that gave rise to other movements. These days, when X and its headspace part ways with the offline world, it's not usually suggestive of a better one. I'm a better writer than I am a speaker. Audio is not necessarily my strength. I mean, what I'm doing now is fine, I hope, but this, what you're listening to, is very clearly scripted. For goodness sake, I pluralized aquarium as aquaria. If you've ever heard me on Shortcuts or spoken to me in person, chances are that you've heard me stammer, maybe talk in circles, even second-guess myself mid-sentence. So Twitter was a good medium for me. It was written, but with the immediacy and liveness of speaking. There's power in that. Not just collectively, as I mentioned, but also individually. In 2009, the New Yorker film critic David Denby published a book-length polemic about snark. It was called simply Snark, and he was not a fan. The paperback edition carried the subtitle, It's Mean, It's Personal, and It's Ruining Our Conversation. I haven't read it. But every so often, I do revisit the New York Times review of Denby's book by the novelist Walter Kern, in which he affirmed, Snickering at power has its uses. Whatever Denby imagines drives the snickerers, and however he belittles their spitting prose. Playing polite, though, exacts a higher price. End quote. Twitter was not just a place to spit prose at the powerful, but a place to do so where they might actually see it. It took advantage of a fundamental insecurity shared by political leaders, business magnates, and pretty much every person who shapes our culture. 
these are people who crave to learn what's being said about them and who can often be quite perturbed by what they find. And so, armed with sufficient creativity, intellect, and or wit, any given Twitter user could potentially land a spitball in the nose of a person at the top who might otherwise be insulated from criticism or accountability, and while millions of others bear witness to the humiliation. When viewed in that light, it's less surprising that the world's richest person would choose to purchase and dismantle it. To be fair, before Musk bought Twitter in October of 2022, it was already becoming the worst version of itself. Every social platform gradually withers as bad actors figure out how to game it, dragging garbage of all kinds from the margins to the center. And the people in charge of these sites rarely see a net benefit in addressing the mutation if they even consider it a problem at all. But since Musk took over, that transformation has been by design. Throughout late 2022 and 2023, every time I went on, there would be a new evident change making it tangibly worse. Hanging out on Twitter slash X felt a bit like going on holiday to a place with an increasingly spotty rights record. Yeah, some of the beaches are still there, but why did journalists critical of the regime keep mysteriously disappearing? Of all the places in the world I could be, do I still choose this one? It does look like it's keen for civil war. Among many other things, Elon Musk has been using X to spread false claims about the American voting system, having already eliminated the controls in place to keep other people from doing so. As a New York Times report, not an op-ed, but a news report, stated plainly over the weekend, quote, No major media owner of the modern era has used his national platform to insert himself so personally and aggressively into an American election. And yes, they're arguing more so than even Rupert Murdoch. So is it useful to stick around that platform to try your best to counter the harm? Or does that just lend credibility to and play into the hands of the whole dystopic enterprise? As a way to quantify my presence on the site, from the time I joined Twitter until around a month after Musk took over, I sent 77,200 tweets, or about 15 per day on average. I sent fewer than 15 in the whole latter half of last year, including the ones I posted by mistake because I meant them for Blue Sky. I actually spend far more time on TikTok these days, because the past few years of TikTok have been thrilling the way early Twitter was thrilling. It taps into creativity that lay dormant, showcases talents that didn't previously have forms to take. Ratatouille the TikTok musical, a joke that snowballed via thousands of people until it sort of became an actual thing, was like witnessing the birth of a new form of art, collective creation as emergent consciousness. I'm Emily Jacobson. In August of 2020, I posted a 10-second video to TikTok a single phrase celebrating the greatest rodent of the 21st century, Remy the Rat. Over the following months, hundreds of other composers, designers, choreographers, and actors posted their own TikTok contributions to create the first crowdsourced global musical theater phenomenon, Ratatouille the Musical.
But I've never posted a single TikTok. It's not my medium. Twitter prized information and wit. Instagram is about aesthetics. TikTok, theater kid energy. I don't have theater kid energy. I'm a better writer than I am a performer. Now, Rob Ford, so long as someone else was actually making the videos, he would have rocked TikTok. I'm not sure that would have been a good thing, but it would have been undoubtedly entertaining. And even where TikTok is right now, it's also pretty easy to see what it will look like as the junkiest content continues to move in from the edges to the center. I'd like to think it's time for a new paradigm. And that's why I'm on Mastodon. No, no, I'm kidding. kidding. I'm not sure what's next. But I'm reasonably confident that it shouldn't be more of the ever-worsening same. Perhaps anyone who leaves Twitter no longer needs it. And anyone who stays there does. That is your Canada land. If you value this podcast, the work that we do here, the podcasts we make for you, we need you to support them. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. It's the only way forward for this company, for this industry. As a supporter, we will give you everything we can. We will give you premium access to all of our shows without ads. We will give you early releases and bonus content. You'll get our exclusive newsletter. You'll get discounts on our merchandise. We do live events. You'll get invites and tickets to them online and in person. More than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible for everybody. So come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read every email that you send. Our website is canadaland.com. You can sign up for our excellent newsletter there. Jonathan Goldsby wrote this episode. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So-Called. Syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? 
White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.